This is Dr. Todd May for the podcast series, Living Philosophy, brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. Living Philosophy is dedicated to exploring the inspiring second lives of people who have successfully made significant changes to their careers and lives through self-reflection, insight, and practice. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed past episodes, please take the time to rate and review Living Philosophy on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. My guest for this episode is Jeffrey Moore, a best-selling author in the field of high-tech business management and leadership. You may have come across his 2014 bestseller, Crossing the Chasm, Marketing and Selling Disruptive Products to Mainstream Customers, which has sold over 1 million copies and has been translated into over a dozen languages. More recently, Jeff has published The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality which turns towards more existential questions about meaning and moral conduct. It's an engaging and provocative book that sets out the case for a secular ethics grounded in evolution. But Jeff is more than just a best-selling author, consultant, and public speaker. He's a fellow academic in the humanities like me. Jeff earned his PhD in English literature at the University of Washington, where his research examined Edmund Spencer's 16th century epic poem, The Fairy Queen and the life strategies presented by that work. Jeff, welcome to Living Philosophy. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Todd. So from English literature to business consultation, that sounds like a fantastic journey and a good plug for the humanities as a subject that has practical relevance and transferable skills. Is that fair to say, given your current work in high-tech business? It sure is. So the, the actual transition, I actually got a job as an assistant professor in a small college in Michigan, Olivet College. But after four years, it was clear to, to my, my wife, Maria, and I that we, we needed to live in California. And so we, we moved back, but there were no openings in ac- academia at that time. So I joined a software company as a training director. And I thought, well, I'll try to figure something out. One of the things you learn about business that connects it with, with literature and philosophy is it's all about narratives. I mean, basically, it's planning narratives, it's investment narratives, it's marketing narratives. I got involved in the marketing side because I was a storyteller kind of person. And that led me into a, a series of sales and marketing positions. And then it led me to a consulting firm where there was a wonderful high-tech consulting firm, Regis McKenna. I joined it in 1986. And in 1990, I actually came out with the very first version of Crossing the Chasm. So that 2014 one is actually the third edition. And that book caught on, and it's just it's it's 30 years later, it's still being used pretty broadly in high tech. So that sort of set me up to do consulting, and the consulting was largely seminars. If you think about how we do, you know, liberal arts seminars, when you're doing strategy consulting, and now I do more organizational design consulting, it's it's talking with people through issues and coming up with frameworks and figuring out how things go. So I think an enormous amount of my liberal arts background has been foundational for, for this work in business. And a lot of people are into storytelling and how narratives mean a lot to the kinds of businesses they do or their professional careers, and certainly to, to understanding more about their own lives. But the other thing about uh, storytelling that I like, especially from an academic perspective, is how it implicitly demands or involves the capability and skill to listen well. And I don't know if um, you found that natural with yourself and how you would do your own research, or if it's something that you would have to uh, specifically cultivate when you're working with professionals, and or if it's something that you like to bring to the attention of people you work with, that the ability to hear and listen uh, is absolutely paramount in, in what we can do. 
I want to give a lot of credit to narrative itself because I think narrative attracts listening in a way that, for example, preaching does not or commanding does not or, you know, criticizing does not. Narrative kind of draws you in, assuming the narrative is appropriate. And I do think, you know, literary criticism is, first of all, a listening to the literature and then a response coming back. And so I do think, I mean, it's funny, I spent a lot, since 1998, I've also been involved with a venture capital firm. Well, entrepreneurial pitches are a form of literature. I mean, they're making it up. There's no, I mean, there's no data. It, it, it's all future. So, so they're telling a story. And, and a lot of what you do as, as a venture investor, you don't, the spreadsheets really don't help much because there's no history. It's about, is this a credible narrative? Is this person a credible actor in that narrative? How do I think the world will respond? And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that any skills you have in both telling stories and listening to stories right at the core of success in the world, as I understand it. I think I just want to plug how important the humanities are here uh, for, for listeners who might be thinking about doing a degree in the humanities. I, what you're saying just uh, works and complements so well with another conversation I just had. I was able to catch up with Jeffrey, Jeffrey Crouch, who's an author for historical narratives and historical nonfiction. And he likes to tell stories about interesting historical figures in his most recent book, The Bonanza King, looks at the silver load mining in Nevada. And out of that, suddenly he was consulting for these high-tech mining firms. And he had no idea why he was getting this invitation. And it's just, as you said, they either don't have the data or they have the data, but they don't know how to make sense of it. And what Jeff found, or what Greg found out very quickly is because he could tell the story based on his historical research, it allowed these mining companies to actually figure out how they were going to go about doing their business. And so there was a total shock for him coming out of left field, as it were. And it's it's amazing how much we rely on narratives and stories to make sense of the, the greater issues. And as you are probably familiar with, a lot of times those moments aren't particularly good ones because they can be very stressful or anxious and existential philosophy, which you mentioned in your book, um, really capitalizes on what uh, Karl Jasper is a German existentialist called these ultimate situations where it's kind of a flee or face it situation of, do I really hide from this question about the meaningfulness of my life or do, do I move away from it? And I just want, before we turn to your book is, so when you made that decision to move to California, was it, uh, was there anything like the, the, the flight or fight response involved in that? It was very interesting. I remember Maria and I were having a conversation and we were talking about things. And she said, you know, I think I need to move back to California. Do you want to come? <laughs> and, and, and the truth, and I said, sure, uh, because because my allegiance was and always has been to Maria and our family. And also, I have to say, I was excited by the adventure. Uh, I thought, you know, um, this, this would be a new adventure. And, and I, I'd gone to Stanford. Marie grew up in Palo Alto. So we were going to move back to a very familiar place. And uh, and so that was so that was not my existential moment. I'll give you an existential moment, though. During the Vietnam War crisis, I determined I was not going to fight in. I was not going to go to Vietnam and, and kill people. I would try to do alternative service. But there was no there was no I was not a, a member of a religious community that would be granted alternative service. So I had to confront that. And I, and I wrote kind of my very, very first I sort of maybe an early version of Infinite Staircase. I don't know. It was my manifesto. And I presented that to the draft board. And it turns out the draft board said, well, would you take a psychological deferment? And I said, yes, and we move forward. But the point was 
that was an existential moment, very much in, 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 in that sense. And, and they are defining, and you solve them through narratives. You don't, you can't like look up a rule book and say, well, now what, let's see, if I look up Plato's philosophy, if I look up this philosophical thing, or if I apply symbolic logic to this problem, it's like, no, no, you're going to tell a story about the problem, and then you're going to interpret the story. And so that was what, that was how that worked. We're just getting started on the intriguing arguments and insights of your book. But before we go further, I just want to help the audience visualize what the staircase looks like. There are 11 steps to the staircase. The first is physics. The second is chemistry the third, biology, the fourth, desire, the fifth, consciousness, the sixth, values, the seventh, culture, the eighth, language, the ninth, narrative, the tenth, analytics, and the eleventh, theory. Although it is an ascending structure with eleven steps, the idea is that the last step circles back to the first and perpetuates a kind of upward spiral of change. And one last note, there's a link to an image of the staircase in the blurb section of the podcast if it helps you to visualize and follow along during the discussion. So the title of the infinite staircase is a metaphor for different levels of being and existence, and it relates to something you talked to, a medieval idea called the great chain of being, and, and that, of course, relies on religious authority and assenting to certain kinds of traditional beliefs. And then the infinite staircase is a move away from that because it's not looking at the top-down model of this is what a religious figure says. But this is how existence seems to be, given our scientific research. And um, then you, you build up from that, looking at how these basic building blocks and interactions at the physical and biological and chemical level lead quite, um, for lack of a better term, naturally to things like culture, language, and storytelling. And the one thing I really found attention-grabbing for me, because I, I have this pet peeve about scientism, where a lot of people here these basic ideas in science, and then they don't really understand it fully, at least I don't think they do. And they kind of reduce life to certain biological processes. And one of the big ones um, that bothers me is this idea about entropy, which I I by no means dispute because I'm not a a physicist or a quantum physicist. But um, a lot of people like to believe that entropy, because it has to do with the constant state of demise to for lack of a, a more sophisticated explanation, think that basically that's a that's that's the scientific pessimist conclusion to life in the universe. Uh, it's that we and we can't get out of it, and that's just the way things are. It's sort of a sad story. But your book comes out quite boldly in the first two chapters or three chapters, and says, "Wait, there's another story to entropy." And I was really delighted to uh, hear or read that. Can you say more about what I like to call this entropy paradox or paradox about entropy? Sure, I'd be delighted to. So, okay, so the, 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 if you start with the Big Bang. That was the universe in its most concentrated form, smaller than a baseball, now the universe, right? So what's it been doing for $13.8 billion? It's been cooling down, spreading out and cooling down. And so entropy in that sense, and it comes from thermodynamics, it comes from the study of steam engines, right? The heat wants to go from a source of concentration to a source of less, you know, from heat to cold, never the other way around. So in that sense, entropy is always creating more disorder. And, and that pessimist, if you want to be pessimistic, and if you thought that was all that was going on, you say, well, wow, that's 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 a very pessimistic story. I talk about that that flow, however, is like a river. And in that river, you can put in mills, you can put in mills, you can put in paddle wheels, you can put in things that actually take that flow and convert it back into work. And that's what that's where ordered life, ordered systems come from. Uh, starting with the fact of the of you know, just the fact that protons got together with electrons. It took 400,000, 400 million years for the universe to cool down enough for an electron to hang out with a proton and create atoms. But they did. 
And that was more order than there was before. But the point about entropy is always, you can always create more order as long as you create more disorder someplace else. And so the, the flow to, from order to disorder is the inherent energy of the universe, but we can repurpose that and create order. And that's what life does. Life essentially takes, takes that energy and builds it back up into order. But every time we do that, every time we reproduce a cell, every time every DNA molecule, every bit of metabolism, it's creating order locally by creating more disorder globally. And so that is the nature of entropy, but it, entropy actually creates order even 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 though you think of it as destroying order, right? Because it, it is created in the highest sense, I suppose that's true, but in the local sense, it creates order and all of order is created out of entropy. When I was reading those first chapters, I was brought back to my days of uh, doing biology, history of life as a general education requirement. And that's one of the great things about the US system is that even as a humanities student, I had to take classes in science. And here we have, the book is a great example of a liberal arts exercise. And by liberal arts, I mean, it's sort of, I think everyone should have a liberal arts training to some degree, because you learn about different ideas across different disciplines. And because you have training in the liberal arts or the humanities, it allows you to storytell, synthesize, interpret critically and so forth and constructively all these ideas and things you're learning about in different sciences and to see it in a different way. And that vision may not be right. You may have one vision at one point and another, but it allows you to engage with these kinds of things, which, which uh, as we're going through, as I was going through the book, finally, I started seeing how all these difficulties I had with certain scientific reductions or I referred to earlier as scientisms uh, can actually make sense. And the and when you, when you were just speaking, I was reminded of and actually I had this thought before when I was reading. But um, there's a Spinoza who talks about the effort and desire to be that all organisms have this effort and desire to be. The idea that as entropy occurs, that you have these spikes in order. It's kind of this moment of concentrated affirmation of being in existence or life. I, I suppose most people just want to see the universe as moving towards some grand culmination of something that's great. I guess that's kind of like a a uh, Hegelian vision of of the universe that it that it reaches some kind of um, high point, but it, it's sort of the, I guess the uh, Spinozan way of looking at it is we, let's not be concerned about the angle. Let's look at the ways in which these concentrated points of affirmation and desire just leap out and can result in um, wonderful things and and sometimes um, um, horrible things, but. I don't know if that's just an observation, if you had any thoughts in relation to that. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you were talking about scientism and it is so important to be able to connect these things together. So so the, 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 the metaphor of the staircase is, as, as I'm sure, you know, you, you well know, it's one of emergence, saying that each layer of reality emerges out of the layer below it with with and obviously is traceable in many ways to the to the effects of the layer below it, but it also has new properties. And, and, and so chemistry has properties that you can't find in physics. All of the, you know, and then biology has properties that you can't find in chemistry, and it goes up. The thing that's important about, and get back to Spinoza, the thing that's important when you get to self-organizing systems, and it starts with inorganic self-organizing systems, but then life is the most amazing self-organizing system, is between positive and feedback loops, they, they, they perpetuate themselves. In other words, the, they, they have a cycle of, of, of reactions of which the last reaction is actually an input to the first reaction. And so, and so you have this spinning loop. And so if you think about life, life both of an individual organism, but also of a species, you know, because we spin up our children, then they spin up their children, and they spin up their children. And so you have these, these extensions. Well, what holds that all together? And, you know, Spinoza's idea about 
the desire to be, I think it's based inherently in those positive and negative feedback loops that keep us moving, that keep us essentially dynamic. So that it's a dynamic equilibrium. We, the problem with the physical sciences is that they always talk about equilibrium as a passive, like a static equilibrium. Like when you reach equilibrium, you're dead. Well, that static equilibrium, that's true. But dynamic equilibrium is no, you keep, you keep your, you keep in balance. You keep the, the wheel spinning, 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 spinning like a tornado, like a whirlpool, like like a like your child, like a dog, like a goldfish. I mean, we're, we're all spinning this stuff up. And so there's, there's a way to tie it back to very specific physical principles without losing the magic, without losing without losing the spirit. That That's the part of our scientism that you and I both probably bridle at. It, 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 just, it just drives all the spirit out of it entirely. And it's like, guys, that's just not, that's not real. I'm reminded of um, a paleontologist whom I read many, many years ago, but he was trying to move outside of the the reduction to uh, Darwinian evolution, as it were, and wanted to describe um, the effort and desire to be, if I can go back to Spinoza, as this biological desire to see more. And I'm just, the the feedback loop you're talking about where the end point comes back to the first point, but it's not the same. It it transforms that uh, starting point. And I was thinking about the way in which storytelling is kind of an analogy or is a, an example of that loop where if we're asked to tell our life story, which um, interestingly, I'm going to plug this podcast, even the audiences are listening to it, but a lot of my guests say, okay, I'm going to tell a story that I know, but then by the end of the conversation, they think, wait a minute, I've arrived at a new perspective on, on the story that I was telling. So in telling the story, you go through it, but then after engaging with people who are listening and getting questions, you arrive at a different perspective about your life, which may be critical, and you know maybe uh, it may be something that's good because you didn't see in the end. And uh, it seems like that. And I'm, I'm I don't want to jump too far ahead. Uh, I'm I'm going to make a promissory note here because I have another question. But it seems like that ability to conceptualize, mentally represent, articulate, and talk about is another step on the staircase you talk about, which which wasn't present before. So once we can articulate, or as one of my favorite French philosophers says, once we can signify to ourselves back through language, then the entire game changes. And it means that um, there's almost an infinite range of possibilities available to us in what we can do. Let me just piggyback on that before we get back to, to your line of questions, which is, you know, when I did that that dissertation about Spencer's poem, uh, the, the 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 subtitle was about strategies for living, and strategies for living was actually a phrase by a guy named Kenneth Burke. He was a literary critic in the early twentieth century, and he said literature is a laboratory for examining strategies for living. Well, I would just extend that say narrative. Narrative is a laboratory. First, it narrative is a way of reporting history, but it's also a way. Of fiction, in particular, is a way of experimenting with possibility. And so what you can do in a fictional, in any narrative, fictional or, or, or biographical or historical, is you, you put out a, a set of cause and effects. It's, it's, it's basically it's a story of cause and effects. And basically, then you can apply analytics to it and say, how credible is that story? How is there, there's a pattern in that story? What, remember in college or in high school, they say, what is the theme of that story, right? We're going to extract some theme from it. And then you say, is there a principle of acting in the future that you can build on? And that's where that's where morality comes from. That, that that's that's where philosophy comes from. It, it, it it's it's where political platforms come from. You say, how can I act on the principles that I see embodied in this narrative? But narrative can't be done without language. So so to you back to your semiotic friend, the language is language is the is the game changer for humanity. Prior to language, 
we're all just mammals. I know you're familiar with Aristotle. You do talk about his poetics in the book. And uh, there's that very interesting but difficult line where he says that poetry and narrative is essentially about action. And we we see it from the other way around. We think, no, it's about characters. Uh, but the life strategies approach really shows that I think what Aristotle was trying to get at was it's through the characters that we understand the actions that are at play in how we think about how we should live our lives, whether it's ethical or and practically and so forth. And back, back, uh, to strategy, back to strategies for living. It, ethics is essentially a set of a compendium of stra- tactics in a strategy for living. And I would argue religion is an attempt to create an overarching narrative within which to act out your strategy for living. So I think I love this. Anyway, I'm very passionately committed to this phrase, strategies for living. That's an excellent segue because um, so far we've had the bottom bottom up approach, which is very interesting because as you know, and very well familiar with, and probably most listeners will be as well, ethical systems and moral philosophy, well, not moral philosophy, some moral philosophy, but certainly moral outlooks tend to want to begin at the other end and religion is the classic example. They want to begin with the top-down approach, where you begin with the authority of a religious figure, whether it's a human person who embodies something that's divine, or a reference to a symbolic, or for some people, a, a literal, historic, real figure, um, you know, like Jesus Christ as a real person. Um, it differs depending on who you read, because you get Christian theologians like um, Rudolf Boltman, who refused to admit the historical interpretation of Christianity as what matters most. But so you have those two kinds of ethical systems at odds, and you rarely, except within philosophy, get attempts to do the bottom-up approach. And most moral philosophies don't begin with evolution uh, in an analysis of biology. I think at the most, they try to see well, Kant might be different, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, who really does try to integrate the science of his time with as being consistent with his own systematic thinking. But can you say um, briefly to the audience why, what the problem is with the, the top-down approach, especially as it's in, instantiated in cases of religion? Well, first of all, let's be fair to it. Prior to understanding evolution, you would say, well, there has to be a divine creator. Where in the world did all this order come from? I mean, you know, the only place we have, we've, we've seen order is in human beings created it. So we generalize that principle and say, well, there must be a divine being, and the divine being creates the order of the universe. And, and I would say prior to maybe the 1800s, it's the only, it's the only thing that made any sense. But but then you then devil, uh, this notion of evolution. Then we began to see natural selection, and, and then we thought, well, whoa, wait a minute. There's, there, maybe there's a different way to play this game. So then that creates at least an alternative. And then so now you say, okay, I could take a religious path, and by the way, many people still do, or I could take this secular path built on evolution. Now the problem with it, so the religious path, and by the way, religious path can claim many good things for it, but the danger with it, a couple of things, and the great chain of being is a great example from the Renaissance. In that, in that world, perfection is at the top of the, of the ladder, the top of the staircase. Every step down is a step into more imperfection. So by the time you get to humanity, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're not quite perfect. So in that situation, when you, when you act badly, somebody says, well, you see, the problem was you didn't understand the thing, but I do. And so I'm going to make you act differently. And that led to just horrific acts. I mean, that led to to the, the, you know, the whole uh, auto de fe thing in Spain, you know, the, 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 it, led to, it, it led to, you know, crusades, it led to jihads, it led to manifest destiny. I mean, it, it, the conquistadors in Latin America, horrible, horrible stuff. 
because we kept on referring back saying, well, no, 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 no. If you got God correctly, we should kill everybody. <laughs> we should kill everybody that doesn't believe correctly. I mean, St. Thomas More is a saint and he was doing it to Protestants. So the evolutionary one goes the other way. It says, wait a minute. If we build it from the bottom up, we get to life, we get to bacteria. By the way, for the first 2 billion years of 4 billion years of life on earth, it's just bacteria. It's just gunk. I mean, there's nothing but gunk. But 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 the gunk starts talking to itself. That's and that's where we start getting the signaling, and it starts self-organizing, and it creates more interesting gunk, and then tissues and organs, and you get you get to a point where you get consciousness, which is basically just a just a signaling system. It's gotten better and better and better and better until it finally becomes kind of conscious, and and then you get to mammals. And mammals, to me, is the big fateful change in evolution, because mammals is the first species that nurtures its young, which means you learn values as a baby without language, without, because if you, didn't, if you were not nurtured, if you were not loved, if you did not experience kindness as a baby, you don't exist. Babies cannot take care of themselves. Reptile babies can't, but mammal babies can't. And so that mammalian nurturing is the beginning of all, for me, all moral and ethical values starts there. And then by the time you get to language, you can bring in fairness because, because now you can talk about things and you can think about other people. You can sort of imagine yourself as part of a set. You say, well, wait a minute, is this fair? And little kids, little kids like four, five, six years old, they get fairness. They get it in a big way. And so fairness and language and, and those things can come in. And then as we get more sophisticated and we get into bigger narratives, like, you know, grand narratives and philosophical, philosophical terms and all the analytics you can apply to that. Now we're getting into, into the domain of morality and the domain of justice, which I talk about later in the book. Those are both very abstract and still, frankly, works in progress. In neither one of them do we, we feel like we have them nailed. But kindness and fairness, we do. I mean, I think most people think, yeah, that's solid. It's when we try to go global with them, we're, 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 we're still struggling. And if I can go back to the the emergence of values in, in mammals, and if I'm, I might not be recalling this correctly, but uh, I, in my understanding of the book, the, the one thing that's going to link the lower parts of the staircase to the more sophisticated and, and complex ones that involve uh, language, culture, ethics, and so forth is... Uh, what you find in the previous stair, uh, stair steps is this biological drive to desire, or the, uh, I quoted Spinoza again, the, the, the desire to persist and to be. And um, th so when you talk about value at that very rudimentary level, I, you, you have a way of qualifying. We're not talking about the kinds of values that we're familiar with in our everyday lives, like love one another, whatever it might be. These, this is a value in a very... I guess, a very uh, basic or rudimentary sense that has biological drives and impulses. Is that is that a correct or accurate? Yeah, it, it, it's great. If, again, back to Spinoza again. So every every living being, whether they're a mammal or a reptile or an insect or whatever, has this, this desire for persistence. But values, at least in the way that we understand them, only appear in mammals, maybe in birds, not in spiders, not in snakes, not in crocodiles. So why? Because the mammalian strategy for living it, it includes nurturing their young. Which Now, when you nurture your young, it's able to develop intellectual capabilities and social capabilities, which allow mammals to work as teams much better than any other organism. I mean, by far. I mean, it's not even close. So it's a team. Being a mammal is a team sport. So that's a strategy for living. It's a biological persistence. The value isn't value because God wants it. The value is because it, Darwin selected for it. 
because because mammals with good values beat out mammals mammals with bad values, and and and, and so those the value and it's not just the value of love, but though that's a big deal, it's also the value of discipline. So the whole alpha the alpha male or the alpha leader could be a female even uh, it doesn't have to be male, but but they're but they're alpha. That tribal, that sort of pack mentality that you learn in Cub Scouts, right? The Cub Scout pack, right? It, it, it's a it's a discipline. That's mammalian also. A wolf cannot read, right? I mean, a dog can't read, but but they still have these disciplines, and we we take them now in, with language. We now inflect them dramatically, but language is a two-edged sword, because language, in the one sense, gives us incredible power. But in the other sense, it then it, it begins to obscure. We we then then we get so extracted to the top of the staircase, we forget about how to connect back to the bottom. This is a contentious area with philosophers about uh, the idea of whether animals, what level of uh, mental representation, if any, that animals have. And Michael Dummett makes a re- response. He wrote, he wrote a book called The Origins of Analytic and Continental Philosophy, which is very interesting. I think some of the dialogues he interviews he has in the past, and he. I, or maybe this was in the, the bulk of the book, but he wants to argue that animals, so a, a dog confronting another group of dogs will be able to recognize mentally and some cognitively in some way that there are a lot of dogs and will decide whether or not it's going to flee or fight. But it, what it can't do is, is say there are three dogs versus six dogs, or so it, it doesn't have that level of mental representation. And you'll get philosophers who will disagree and say, no, they can do this and so forth. How would you sort of imagine the mental representation of, of, a, of a non-linguistic animal. And let's take a dog because we, we're very familiar with dogs. So I would claim that, that you cannot be self-conscious or self-aware without language. So, because I, I don't think you can become self-aware without narrative. And, I, and, and what you learn with language is you learn, your parents start telling stories about you. And, they, and you, you learn about yourself through the narratives that your, your, your parents tell you and your friends tell you. And after a while, you start telling your own narrative and you build your sense of self around that. All of that stuff, that's language inflected. So that's not available. Well, then what is available? And I, and I thought about athletic performances. Like I thought about when somebody's dancing or doing playing football, or I, I like to play golf. When you're doing your best athletic performance, you are not in a language inflected mode. In fact, language inflection during an athletic performance will deteriorate the performance, not improve it. You can't think and act at the same time. You can think before and after, but, but, but not during and I think that experience of, of action, of, of consciousness and action without reflection, just consciousness and action is a, is a good model for animal, th- animal thing. And the other thing I think might be interesting is qualia. So qualia is this word that just shows up in philosophy all the time. I love it every time I see it. I think what qualia is, is pre-linguistic experience. Pre-linguistic consciousness. And the reason we're always sort of hesitating about it or you know, we argue about it is because I think particularly, and this is a philosophical vice, this is the reductionism of philosophy. Philosophy always wants to get it back to language I can control. It's like, you know what, quali- if quality precede language, they're more intimate than you are, dude. <laughs> it's closer. And therefore, you better respect the fact that you're talking to your parent, not to your child. I mean, this, this is where you came from. And so I think there's a lot to explore in quality in that way. And I think it'll get into aesthetics. I, did, I didn't write about aesthetics at all in the book, but I'm thinking about aesthetics is, is the domain of qualia in some ways. We've reached the midpoint of our podcast. So let's hear from our sponsors. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion 
and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Contact her at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. Hello, this is Martin Bunzel. Like Todd May, I'm a philosopher interested in engaging with more than academics. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I think about philosophy as I hike sections of the Pacific Crest Trail. You can do that by reading my new book, Thinking While Walking, available on Amazon in both paper and on Kindle. A kind reader writes, Reading this book is like a leisurely stroll with your favorite professor, an opportunity to weave philosophical musings with an awe of nature. It is both provocative and delightful. I hope you'll read it and feel the same way. If so, you can follow my philosophical blog and more at mbunzel.com. In this bold new book, The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high-tech's best-known strategist, Jeffrey Moore, makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source for answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase, what the universe tells us about life, ethics, and mortality, provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.theletterh.com the letter N, the letter R, the letter L, dot org. That's www.hinrl.org. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. If you're interested in organizational improvement in view of meaningful work, virtues, compassion, and self-development, contact philosophytoyou.com to get the process of transformation and innovation 
We can help identify your goals and how to achieve them based on your organizational strengths and potential. We can also provide staff seminars for learning and development that promote group dynamics, group learning, and not just mere instruction. Let's start embracing life in the workplace. Visit us at www.philosophy2theletteru.com. And now, back to our show. There's a couple things that have come up. Um, one is qualia, which I've never, I've, I'll confess, I've never really understood uh, in, in any of the philosophical literature I've read. And not that I've read a lot about it. And philosophy of science is not really my particular strength. But there is a lot of current research going on that's related to cognitive sciences and phenomenology, which want to talk about this prelinguistic level of relationship that happens in the womb. Um, the only reason why I know this is because I had a former PhD student uh, who was doing research in phenomenology and twinship. So he himself, uh, James Hawker, is a twin, and he was interested in the way in which twins could communicate intimately. And he, he was sick and tired of all the, well, they have some kind of mystical sensibility, and that's why. And so he, he was looking at the research and trying to make arguments from a philosophical perspective of how it is that twins can communicate exceptionally, especially as it appears to singletons who don't have this kind of pre-linguistic relationship in the womb that has to do with the way in which the body reacts to its surroundings and so forth. So I don't know if, if that would qualify as qualia on, on your account. I think it's not just in the womb. I think twins usually hang out together for their first year of their life too, but which is also pre-linguistic. If, if we want to get a good sense of pre-linguistic consciousness, I would say a baby from you know birth to a year, that's a pre-linguistic year. You watch those little devils. They're, they are very conscious and they have strategies for living. I mean, they learn about crying. They learn about laughing. They learn, they, they see this thing move in front of their face and all of a sudden they figure out it's my hand. <laughs> they don't call it a hand yet. But, but, and so all of that, all of that sort of um, learning and con it is consciousness. I mean, it's, it's clearly conscious. And, and so, but it's not linguistic. And I think that and meditation and mindfulness are the, are the, are the two things I think help me at least get more respect for the pre-linguistic sensibility uh, because it's clear that it's clear that if you just stay linguistically like if you look at continental philosophy and the structuralism and the post-structuralism and the deconstruction they are caught in a web of language they can't get out they're just it's, a, it's like marcel marceau trying to get out of that you know that playing that mime that can't get out of the, the of the walls they're trapped in that world language can be a trap you, you, but it can, it, but it obviously is a incredible platform. We're currently using it right now, in case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> but but it, but we but we have to be respectful of the fact that it's only one stair in the staircase, and analytics in particular. I would say actually, what happened to continental philosophy? It actually didn't get stuck on narrative as much as analytics. And analytics, I mean, it, it it's it's like a drug. I mean, you get you get caught up in analytics. You can you can. It's like learning to be a chess master. So, I mean, you can just play chess for the rest of your life. And uh, it, it's it's only one stair in the staircase. So, so I'm going to try and relate this obliquely by a detour roundabout. It, it has to do with the nature of language and how it, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's beneficial because we can articulate, signify, understand, interpret. At the same time, we can we can be caught prisoner in our own languages, whether it's believe in a political narrative, as we've all experienced recently um, in everyone around the world, not just Americans in the U.S., uh, narratives can be good or bad or vicious or virtuous kind of thing. Um, we can just be stuck with the idea of our, our own concepts that reaffirm cognitive biases, like confirmation biases about we hear something that's counterfactual to 
what we believe, but we simply dismiss it, those kinds of things. And the, the philosopher I, I alluded to earlier, and I probably end up naming in every podcast, but uh, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur is a hermeneutic philosopher. And so his way of trying to break that cycle is to say that uh, we can't get away from language, as, you, as you're saying, but there is something, instead of talking about the pre-linguistic, because for Ricoeur, it's sort of a, a, an oxymoron to try and talk about the pre-linguistic without, trying, without being reduced to your own concepts. And so he likes to say that there's something extra-linguistic, a surplus of meaningfulness that breaks through and ruptures our normal way of seeing things. And this is when things get interesting for him. So he thinks symbolism and metaphor have a strong part to play in that. But the other the other thing I want to come back to, because there's, there's probably a worry, I can see a lot of my former philosophy students raising their hand if this were a seminar. And it has to do with things like, you're probably familiar, familiar with a version of the naturalistic fallacy or anthropomorphism. Sorry, let me say that again for the audience. Anthropomorphism, where we take something that's not human and we try to describe it in terms of human concepts and language. So another way in which we, we can be trapped in it. And so someone might say, uh, when you talk about value, that's you're already introducing a human idea to the biological level. And uh, I don't know if you've, you have a response to that or just say, uh, that's just a wrongheaded thought in any way. I think for a long time, and in, in, in this discussion of consciousness, aren't you imposing? Aren't you imposing your view of humanity on? Let's say, take a pet. You know, so my pet loves me. No, no, Jeffrey, you, you've imposed anthropomorphically on top of uh, your pet. I want to make the counterclaim. The counterclaim is clear, which is no. Mammalian nurturing installs this value in the strategy of the mammalian strategy for living, and we inherited it as mammals, we did not derive it as linguistic creatures. Now, those are both debate. I mean, you could say, okay, hypothesis one, hypothesis two. Um, my sense of the world is that is that in observing mammals in nature, uh, that you see this, you see this behavior, and obviously they don't have language. So now am I am I imposing it on them or am I actually seeing it? You know, I mean, that's that's where you'd have that. Your, your philosophy student would say, "Well, I'm not sure I agree with you, Mr. Moore," uh, but but at least I want to be clear about where we think this is coming from. And it's a big deal because because it says our best selves may come from below, not from above. And and I really do want to free us from the tyranny of above, which which we've demonstrated can be pretty dreadful if you're not careful. But one, I want to make one other connection because. You know, we have natural selection. I've claimed that natural selection will select for for values and, and even for imitating culture. Culture, by the way, I suggest happens before language, which is weird for most people. But I, again, what I'm trying to say is culture is the socialization of a strategy for living. Instead of communicating it by genes, in culture, you actually communicate it socially by imitation. And it creates this idea called memes, this Richard Dawkins idea called memes, which for me is the, drives the rest of the staircase. The rest of the staircase is natural selection against ideas as opposed to natural selection against genetic code. But both genes and memes code for strategies for living. The one does it biologically, the other one does it linguistically, but they're both essentially strategic units of strategy, units of strategic behavior, which Darwinism can select against. So the, the evolution, the, the Darwinian evolution takes you all the way from, from desire all the way up through, you know, narrative, language, and uh, analytics, and theory, because at every level we're saying socially we're selecting, and by the way, it's not just natural selection for does it work, it's also sexual selection for is it popular, 
is it viral? And so both of those things work on ideas very similar to the way that natural and sexual selection work on biological genes. I just wanted to make sure that point got in there because it's kind of what holds the last two thirds of the staircase together. So kindness is is an interesting mammalian trait. And um, I, I forget exactly what you juxtapose it with, but you talk about the way in which kindness is very, I uh, use the term parochial. So I'll, I'll stay with that. It's parochial in terms of it's looking directly at the family or some other bigger group than the family. But it, it it doesn't quite understand. So it can be exclusive. So be, as you mentioned with religion, it often happens. Religious ideas, although they might be good for one group, they tend to be bad for another group who don't who don't believe in the same things that your group does. But so there's something else that arises in this uh, growing or um, spiraling up kind of uh, feedback loop of of ideas and the growth of consciousness and the, the idea of, of persistence. And it, it's um, something that moves more into the area of ethics. So kindness is, is I, if I recall correctly, is, is pre-ethical or quasi-ethical because it doesn't take into full account others as much as it should. And then there's something else. I think fairness is, if I, if I recall correctly, is, okay, I can be kind to my group, but then is that fair to the other group? So there's fairness is more objective, whereas kindness is more of the subjective experience. So in that sense, Kindness and fair, fairness uh, have a complementary, although we might often find they're antagonistic to one another, but they have a complementary role in sort of the growth and desire of persistence, not just of the individual, but with, I don't know if you would agree with this, I'm going to use a phrase of Paul Ricoeur, but with and for others. The mammalian strategies you point out is local. There is, there's the us and then there's the them. And, and, you know, by the way, we struggle with this at, at a social level. We try to deal with social issues because if people are saying, well, you're not being fair to them. And, and we're trying to take kindness and fairness to very, very high levels. They don't scale as well as we wish they would. OK, and, but 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 it's, but when we start with this experience, we have we have the, the in, inside the group and, and religion, as you point out, religion like kindness works very well for the group, the, the us, but it doesn't work so well for the them. And so fairness and justice are really designed to deal with them, but the, all four of them are designed to maintain a fabric of human society within which the mammalian strategy for living can, can have success. If there's no society, then mammalian strategy for living is very, very limited. And, and so we're trying to expand it as much as we can. It's just that there's 9 billion people on the planet, but I don't think the strategy was ever designed for 9 billion people. So we're, we're trying to sort of work our way through it. And, and, and we're, we're struggling mightily, as, as you've already referred to, with all the, the issues in the world that we're trying to deal with. Um, but, but that's kind of where, that's kind of where I, I, th I think it sits. So we're talking, uh, we've been talking about the sort of structure and nature of ethics as it arises from evolution. I'm going to try and press you a little bit and ask you about some practical implications of this. And you might say it just depends how uh, your particular ethics is going to play out, but there seems to be enough substance or, or quite a bit of substance in, in the story that you've already told, which might have certain consequences or implications. So uh, one of the hot topics that I'm concerned about from a political and ethical uh, viewpoint as a philosopher is the way in which a certain kind of individualism dominates, especially in the United States, and I call it the myth of self-sufficiency. And um, you get other versions, you get versions of it in other countries, but it's very dominant in the U.S. And where it's coming out explicitly is now during the pandemic, where people insist it's their right 
uh, not to wear a mask or get vaccinated. And I think they're the same look, although, although you'll get libertarian philosophers who will argue that there's a difference between wearing a mask and injecting something into your body. Um, yes, maybe, but um, it depends on the context. And so one of my arguments is that, well, first of all, this conception of individual, individual rights makes no sense within the history of philosophy, except within libertarianism, which is very recent development in, in the, the history of the West. But the reason why it doesn't make sense to, to the history of philosophy is because the most substantial philosophers you'll hear about talking about rights will say that the notion of an individual right, where that has full authority over anything, becomes self-contradictory. Because if everyone has that right, all you are is, a, is not even a group, just a mess of people trying to impose your own individual right on others. And so one individual right harms another. And Thomas Hobbes will just say, this reduces to a state of war of all against all. Everyone is a potential threat to your own rights. I don't think this is really about rights. I think rights is being a token being played in a, in, in, on a chessboard. I think this is about narratives. So the, the libertarian narrative, and, and so you and I are obviously more associated with the left than the right. Um, so, so for us, the Trump narrative just blatantly looks very, very strange to us. But, but if you look at that narrative, you say, okay, well, well, what about the people that are caught up in that narrative? And, and you can see that their identity, these people went to the Capitol on January 6th and, and essentially broke into the, the Senate, okay? They wanted to overturn the election. They were going to stop the steal. There are these, these memes, and, and this is a meme, or this is a, and a meme is a viral idea that captures your identity, becomes an identity theme, and you want to live for it, and you will die for it. Well, these people have adopted this set of memes, and the mask is simply a, it's simply a, it's 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 it's, it's like a signifier. It's 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 like a code word for saying I'm I, I'm identified with this meme, and the and the anti-vax is a anti-vax is different, but it's 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 a similar meme and it's a similar identification. Both kind of have an anti-science, anti-establishment, anti east and west coast anti-intellectual elite anti-todd anti-jeffrey i mean you know, just hey you guys go away you know and, and we're going to do this in our way so so when you see that the first thing we, we have to understand is people we all live in service to memes these memes seem very very weird to me and very strange to me and i think very destructive to me by the way many of us live in service to destructive memes not just, I mean, because we have a life narrative and, and the way we deal with the, the, the issues in our life is we construct a narrative of anger and injustice and outrage. And then we look for opportunities to exercise our outrage in the world and we go places to do so. Uh, and it, it, it's all part of a, a, a it, it, it's its own self-perpetuating, right? I mean, this is this is back to Spinoza. It's just, it's just a, a dark a dark Spinoza rather than a light Spinoza. Uh, but but that's who we are. I mean, that's that's we are creatures of our own memes. I, I say in the book, we're born a product of our genes, but we die a product of our memes. And I, I think that's that's what's going on there. The French existentialist Albert Camus puts it, he says, a reason for living is a reason for dying. And I can never figure out what the tone of that phrase is because it seems that he's inflecting it ironically. Um, but I, I think Camus is I think Camus is actually being very positive about death, not negative. And it's actually mortality. That, that Camus referring there to, which is, you know, we've built religion and ethics on the platform of immortality. And the, the, the fundamental idea was, hey, you screw up in this life, you're going to suffer for eternity, dude. You better, you better get your act together now. Okay. Well, that's fine. But if you do a secular world, there's no immortality. And so then you have to say, I'm going to build my ethics on top of mortality. 
well, what is the ethical forcing function of mortality? And basically, it's kind of like time limits, and and you, know, and you have this Spinozan desire to act out your your, your your best self. So one of the concerns, I personal concerns I have with the way in which understanding of science, biology, evolution can be complementary to a wider view of reality that is specifically relevant to humans is the problem of it's still reducing back to some kind of concept of evolution. So you mentioned Richard Dawkins, and he's obviously, as you know, uh, because you talk about it in the book, he's very famous for uh, the theory about the selfish gene. And this is, it was revolutionary at the time. And uh, elsewhere, I say, if if you're concerned about individual self-sufficiency as a human, you'll be pretty upset and disappointed to know that according to Dawkins theory, humans are just a byproduct of what the ultimate selfish individualistic thing is, and that's the way the gene persists in its own, own way to be. So are, are you worried about someone just coming back saying, Jeffrey, you've gave, you've given a great story, but you know what? At the end of the day, all the things you talk about, humans and so forth, they're just epiphenomenal. They're just an accent of they're just random in terms of evolution. They really don't have anything substantially related to the, the fundamental process of evolution and how things are just concerned about its own self-persistence in organism? I would say prior to the arrival of of language, I I can see what people are saying. Two things about that. Uh, So so one is the epiphenomenon is, well, wait a minute, if it's a staircase, basically the way I would respond to the criticism of epiphenomenalism is to say, so there's only one real stair and all the other stairs are just imaginary. And by the way, what did you have for lunch today? And are you, you know, would you like to go to dinner tonight? Because those are epiphenomenal too. And all of a sudden you realize you realize your whole life is invested entirely in epiphenomenalism. Are you sure you want to dismiss it? Because I mean, like, you know, you want, how are you going to talk to your kid tonight? Right. So I mean, the, the epiphenomenalism is frankly just a fraud. It's a complete, it's a reductionist play that says, and by the way, physicists are the worst behaviors because they have driven the model down so far. And God bless them. I mean, they did, they took it to Adams. Oh, we're not going to stop at Adams. Protons, electrons, we're not going to stop there. Quarks, leptons, axions, I mean, all this stuff, right? So you could, and, and what they're saying is you can always push down there. I'm not sure you ever get to the complete bottom, but but you, there is a, there's a sense in which you say, okay, that is the substrate for everything above. And that's true, but it's a substrate. And by the way, there's layers and layers and layers of substrate. And unless you take the entire staircase as your context, you're going to overprivilege some stair and underprivilege some other stair, and you're going to misunderstand the structure of reality. And you're going to, and your strategy of living may suffer for that misunderstanding. So that's the claim, at least, of the staircase, which is like, guys, you have to honor the, you have to honor every stair, and you have to honor the fact that any lower stair is necessary for an upper stair, but no upper stair is necessary for a lower stair. And so you have to sort of, and that's what made the staircase. Staircase is actually a little bit more ambitious than I think people may realize. Some of the stairs are obvious, but some of the stairs are not obvious, and they are controversial. But but I think that the notion of emergence is pretty well established. That if I were to criticize the whole book, if I wanted to take on say more, of this is complete trash. I think the way you would do it is you'd say your idea because it's totally dependent on this idea of complexity, emergence, and self-organizing systems. If you said if you could if you could find some way to invalidate that idea, then the whole staircase would fall down. But the whole staircase is built on the idea of, of, of that, and I, I I feel pretty confident that it's a, it, it's a, it's a good it's a good description. Um, but but that's where you, where if, if you wanted to attack it, that's where I would attack. It. I'm personally, from a philosophical perspective, in very 
much in, in sympathy with the idea of complexity, that things move towards complexity and more unified systems. And uh, so we, we just, for the audience members, I'm going to just frame things. So we just talked about the worry of scientific reductionism, where, uh, although we mentioned earlier, I gave another version of it, where we can just say all the things that we do through language, all the concepts that we have are epiphenomenal, or they're just fictions. They don't really matter to what's really going on. And um, uh, just to recap, so Jeff gave the response that we have to bear the whole structure of the staircase in mind to, to avoid that. So the other problem then would be just to forget the lower staircase and just to reside with the things that we think um, that the, that traveling along the staircase has resulted in. We'll take certain concepts like love, whatever that might be, or if you can think of some kind of vicious version of love, I guess it would be very prejudicial, parochial in some way, um, that you might get these, just, just the belief in these certain concepts and we teach these to others, we make them memes. So is there anything you have to say about the structure of the staircase that uh, mitigates that or actually is an antidote or a remedy to that problem? I would argue the, uh, the opposite of scientific re reductionism is, is idealism. So idealism starts at the other end. It says, look, I mean, you have, you have uh, Berkeley, right? It's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all mine. It, 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 everything is mine. And, and you think, now that, that, no, that's, have you ever tried to build a house, Mr. Berkeley? I mean, it's just, really, <laughs> come on. So, 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 but the point is, there is this distinction between when we when we transition from genes to memes, it 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 it's a big 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 deal because all of a sudden the selfish gene works up until you get ideas. But then I think it's the selfish meme. And you said, could there be an evil meme? Oh yeah, there could be an evil meme. There could be a very destructive memes. Yes, and they are selfish, and they they and and they're about power. And 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 they they create power out of negative energy. The dark. This is back to Luke, right? Luke, you know, I'm your father. I'm the dark side. You know, and, but but the point is, both are, they're both memes and they're both powerful. Uh, and so so and part of navigating a human life is to sort of sort of navigate your way am, among the memes. Um, but but in that context, um, you you have to honor you you have to honor every stare. You just. Otherwise, otherwise, what you're doing is you're going to force fit a parochial view, which satisfies your local demands, onto a recalcitrant universe, which, by the way, will yield in the, in the short term and yield locally. But in the long term and globally, it, it, will, it will, the elasticity of reality will come back and overwhelm you. So it's kind of important if you can get aligned with reality, which is kind of what religion was trying to do. It's kind of what philosophy is trying to do. So if you could line yourself up with the way the world as it really is, your strategies for living will have more success because you will be swimming with the current instead of against the current. So it's kind of important to figure out where the current is. And that's what this podcast is about. It's what my book's about. It's what we're all trying to do. At one point in the book, towards the end, you mentioned the importance of narratives. And, I, and uh, I'm assuming that's another way in which we work out the problems of whether or not our memes are, are virtuous or vicious in that way. And um, one of the criticisms of, of narrative from people who don't like things like narrative theory and hermeneutics is that, well, it, it's just going to reduce to just your story. And I was worried about that. And I know Paul Ricoeur has a response to it. And it was great to see that basically what you articulate is, is complementary and overlaps to what Ricoeur says. And, and you say something to the effect, if I remember correctly, that if we take narrative seriously, we have to understand that when we're telling our stories, we're not the only actor or author within that story, that although we know we are mortal and our story is going to come to an end, we don't know how it's going to get there, when it's going to happen. And so these kinds of in, in uncertainties, ambiguities, and unknowns 
should really, I don't know if you say this, but it's going to be me speaking, um, it, um, force a position of, of narrative humility about the way in which we try to uh, live or practice our lives as we do according to memes. Yes, I would agree with that. And I would also expand the narrative. Look, my narrative, I, I, my great-grandmother died when I was 21 years old. She was like 101. So I've participated in one, two, three, four, five. My grandchildren right now. So there's six generations of 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 family uh, that I that I participate in. And if I can stay, live long enough, maybe there'll be a seventh. My point being, the narrative doesn't have to be restricted just to us. You can you you can you can find meaning in life by being part of a narrative that started before you were born, and will be and will not end after you die. So that there's a way to say, look, I'm not trying to be immortal, but I'm trying to participate in something beyond just the limits of my birth and death. And I think that's important. Part of what I think identity needs, we need a narrative which allows us to die comfortably, which allows us to live powerfully. And, and if, we, if, we, if it doesn't, then it's like, oh man, now, now I'm hobbled. There's, there's, my, creative, my field of creative endeavor has been limited because I'm not willing, I don't, I'm not equipped to, to handle it outside of these boundaries. But, but with memes, you can handle it outside of those boundaries. That's what I'm about to come out. It's not just that I can live for it, I can die for it. You know, if when you're young, you actually, the romantic idea is I want to die for something rather than live for something because it's so dramatic. And by the way, if I died for something, I'd probably be pretty cool. <laughs> but, but, but as you get older, you realize, no, no, the, the real challenge is to live for something. We've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests two questions. And the first question is, is there any one philosopher or philosophy that's been absolutely central to the way in which you've engaged with ideas and concepts and the way you've lived your life? I would say that the game changer for me was actually the practice of transcendental meditation. And I would say for a good period of my life, transcendentalism was, was kind of my orientation. I, I love Whitman. I love Emerson. I love Thoreau. I love those guys. The actual secular humanism actually Transcendentalism is a bit more religious. There's a bit less evidence for it than you would want for a secular humanist metaphysics. So I actually retreated from it back into pragmatism, which aligns very well with evolution. And I would say with pragmatism, it, it, it's kind of the, the the William James, John Dewey, Charles Pierce group. Those are the kind. Of, those are the places that I've gotten my most help. For those unfamiliar with transcendentalism, can you sum up for some of its key, key ideas that come from the American tradition of Whitman, Thoreau, and Emerson? Yeah, I mean, basically, transcendentalism, I think, probably started with the awe that we experience in beauty or nature or, or some exhilarating moment. And then they wanted to say, look, we wanted to generalize that. They, it, it, at that time in New England, they were moving away from a purely uh, high, you know, the, well, there was a split in Christianity in, in, in New England during the 19th, early 19th century between the fundamentalists who wanted to get you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, um, uh, that, you know, that sort of fundamentalism. And the people who wanted to be deists, who wanted to say, look, there, there's a God, but it's much more, it's much more abstract and more, more Eastern, more, more like Brahman. And the transcendentalist view was, yes, being is an, is an impersonal field. It has many divine attributes. It supports spiritual life. It supports human life, but it's not personal. And I think that was the big, the big idea with transcendentalism. It's, it's there. And, and I would argue that my, the practice of mindfulness or yoga or meditation or Zen or any of those things are all grounded in that idea as well as transcend, American transcendentalism as well. Would you say that mindfulness and yogic practice is a way of reconnecting 
different levels of the staircase. You experience mindfulness at the level of consciousness interacting with desire. It's like halfway between that desire and consciousness moment. It's almost pre-conscious, but you have to be conscious in order to do these things. But it's, it's definitely pre-linguistic. And, and for all that, you have so much of Western philosophy in the 20th century has been, how do I get outside of the trap of, of analytics and, 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 and linguistics? And I think this is, this is a pretty reliable pathway. The final question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? I like where you started this thing, which is, you know, you want to be able to engage with narratives in an open-minded way, but maintaining critical thinking. And so when we talk about the human, I mean, you know, Todd and I are both in the humanities tradition and the liberal arts education tradition. He went to this minor university called Yale. I went to Stanford. I mean, let's face it, you know, but, but, but the point was that, that what both of those institutions are all about is the notion of, look, we do live in the context of narratives. We do need critical analytics to apply to them, but there is such a thing as truth and we can pursue truth, even if we can't nail it. And, and we need to. And I think part of this podcast is, is, is about that. So I, I want to encourage you to do it. Jeffrey Moore, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. Well, Todd, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for such great questions. If you would like to know more about Jeffrey Moore and his books and consultation, please visit his website at www.jeffreyamore.com. You can find his most recent book, The Infinite Staircase, on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. You can also check out the podcast blurb for links to Jeff's work, related information, and links to our sponsors. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please review, share, and subscribe. If you're interested in sponsoring Living Philosophy, please get in touch. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.